Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. For this episode, we're going to do something a little bit different. We did this last year, the highlights of the Whistler Conference. This is a fantastic conference that's put on by the University of Toronto Divisions of Emergency Medicine. It features many of the expert guests that have been on emergency medicine cases before and also some new faces. We're going to cover everything from the best literature from 2012 to fever of unknown origin and much, much more. So without further ado, get ready for lots of pearls from this year's 2013 Whistler Conference Update in Emergency Medicine. We're going to kick things off with Dr. Joel Yaffe reviewing some of the key literature from 2012, and he's going to start off with talking about head bleeds after anticoagulation use. There were a pair of articles at the Annals of Emergency Medicine in June 2012, Volume 59, Issue 6, that talked about patients who are taking clopidogrel or warfarin and bonk their head. So the names of the two articles are Management of Minor Head Injury in Patients Receiving Oral Anticoagulation Therapy, a Prospective Study of a 24-Hour Observation Protocol, and the second one's called Immediate and Delayed Traumatic Intracranial Hemorrhage in Patients with Head Trauma and Pre-Injury Warfarin or Clopidogrel Use. So here goes Dr. Yaffe. This is the first of two papers that were published in the same issue of the Annals of Emergency Medicine. Uh, this was an Italian study that uh, looked at patients with closed head injuries who were on warfarin. And they started from the point of view where they said, you know, we do CT scans on people who are on warfarin, but we maybe don't pick up all the people who are at risk. Some people are going to have bleeds later on. So they developed a protocol where all their patients got CT'd at the front end, got admitted and observed for 24 hours, and then got CT'd again. They didn't include patients who had bleeds at the beginning, and uh, they looked at people with GCS 14 to 15. These were mild head injuries and really low level of overall injury severity. So of everybody who came in, 16% of these people who um, were on warfarin who had a bump on the head had a bleed on arrival, which I have to say for most people this seemed high, but that's what they found. Uh, in the people that they decided to watch, uh, they ended up with 87 out of sort of 97 that they were able to follow up. And out of those 87, five developed a delayed bleed. Most of them were not a big deal. One went on to have some neurosurgery. And uh, their conclusion was that you can identify all of these people or most of these people uh, by keeping them for 24 hours. And there was a recommendation buried in there that if somebody comes in to your department and they're on warfarin and they bump their head, uh, they should be admitted and watched for 24 hours and have a repeat scan. And I remember a number of people going around saying, did you hear that we should be doing this? We'll come back to this in a couple of seconds. In the same issue, there was another study. This was very different. They looked at people with head injuries of various kinds, all kinds of GCSs, all kinds of injury severity scores. But these were people who had head injuries who were on either warfarin or clopidogrel. None of them were on both. It was a number of centers in Northern California. Uh, they could not be on both 
warfarin and chlorpidogrel, uh, and they excluded transfers because they thought that that would unfairly bias the severity of injury. And this is what they found. And this seemed to be really surprising. So in the warfarin group, about 5% of their people, uh, and these were all kinds of head injuries, so 5% of them had a bleed. In the clopidogrel group, 12% had a bleed. Big difference. Uh, There may have been some reasons for this. You know, the authors said, and others have said, people who are on warfarin, they kind of know if I hit my head, I need to go get checked out. Uh, people on clopidogrel may be less likely to do that, and they might have actually been getting a more severe population. Having said that, they said, well, you know what, clopidogrel seems to be a big deal. Uh, And in their stuff, this delayed bleed thing did not seem to be a big deal. So there was an editorial in that journal where they essentially trashed or severely questioned the notion of having to keep every head injury for 24 hours. They said, look, they really picked up one person who had a significant neurosurgically important injury by that observation period. And so the authors of this study, this study said, we don't think that there's a value to prolonged observation, but we do think that every patient on clopidogrel should be scanned at the time coming in. Is that what you've all been doing? Have people been scanning everybody on clobitigrel with uh, head injuries? I I have to say I wasn't. I looked back at some of the stuff and there had been some soft recommendations. I think if you look at both of these articles, this is probably the take-home message. You don't have to keep everybody for 24 hours if that's what you've been hearing. I think this idea of having to scan minor head injuries in people on clopidogrel is... In evolution, I, I think I would do it now. I think I would do it, uh, especially if they're also on aspirin, and some of their patients were on aspirin as well. Uh, you'll have to make your own choices because the recommendations have not been leveled. Uh, but the other thing is, if you have people on these drugs, scanned or not scanned, that you're going to send home, you know, we kind of get pretty laissez-faire. We say, we've got a scan, you look fine. Uh, probably if they're on warfarin or clopidogrel and they're going home, there should be some mandatory follow-up method, whether it's by telephone, uh, contact with a family member, but probably somebody should touch bases with them at 24 hours. So let's review some take-home points about these patients with a head injury who are on warfarin or clopidogrel in these two articles. The first article showed that 16% of patients on warfarin with a minor head injury had a bleed on CT. The second study showed that patients with head injury of all kinds on warfarin had uh, incidence of 5% of bleed on the CT, which is pretty high. So we should be careful of these patients on warfarin. What was surprising in the second study was that 12% of patients on clopidogrel with head injury had a bleed on the initial CT, which begs the question, should we be CTing all of our patients on clopidogrel with any kind of head injury, no matter how minor? We should certainly at least be considering it. Next, 6% of patients on warfarin with a minor head injury whose initial CT showed no bleed did have a bleed on delayed CT 24 hours later in this first study. And in the second study, 0.6% showed a delayed bleed. However, none of the patients on clopidogrel had a delayed bleed. So we don't have to worry about delayed bleeds with patients on clopidogrel, but we do have to worry about delayed bleeds with patients who are on warfarin. Dr. Yaffe concludes that it's probably overkill to admit all of these patients on warfarin with a normal initial CT, but in those patients who you're worried about, let's say because they have a supra-therapeutic INR, 
you may want to consider a repeat CT in 24 hours. And while we don't have to admit all these patients, you might want to consider at least have the patient being observed very carefully at home to come back for a CT in 24 hours, or if they have no supports, then perhaps an admission to hospital. The article does note that patients with an INR of greater than 3 are at higher risk for delayed bleeds, which is intuitive. Next paper, I'm a simple guy. This is my favorite paper of 2012. All the patients come in and say, Doc, can I take out my sutures? And I say, oh, no, you can't do that. I really think they can, but I always thought I wasn't allowed to tell them to take out their own sutures. So this was a study done uh, in a couple of hospitals in BC. They took a bunch of people who had simple lacerations that were closed with non-absorbable sutures. And uh, in the study group, they gave them wound care instructions, a suture removal kit, which costs about a buck and a half, and uh, some instructions for suture removal. And they uh, wanted to know what percentage of people can successfully take out their own sutures. They looked at some follow-ups that that involved complication rates. And uh, like 97, 91% of the people took out their sutures, no complications. Less ED visits seems fine. By the way, the interesting thing is of, uh, so of the people that were told don't take out your own sutures, 65% of them took out their sutures anyways. So you could look at the methodology of this study and say, well, I, you know, I, I think this is something we can do. I've started to give people suture removal kits, and uh, it's really easy. I think it's brilliant because it was a really easy, straightforward study, and I think it can have an impact. I would do this. So the reference on this one is an article called, Are Patients Willing to Remove and Capable of Removing Their Own Non-Absorbable Sutures? This one's by McDonald from CGEM 2012, number 14. It's a prospective trial of about 183 patients with simple lacerations. In the control group, they just gave them usual wound care instructions. In the study group, they gave them wound care instructions plus a suture removal kit with instructions for self-removal of the sutures. And the primary outcome was uh, the proportion of patients successfully removing their own sutures. The results showed that self-removal was successful in 91.5% of patients, and it decreased MD visits from about 35% to 10%, and there was no difference in complication rates. And the authors did conclude that for simple lacerations, if given proper instructions and equipment, many patients are willing and able to remove their own non-absorbable sutures. So this seems like a really practical and easy thing to implement in your ED. Two more studies. Looking at antibiotics for sinusitis, this group um, looked at uh, amoxicillin for sinusitis. This was a, an ENT group in uh, St. Louis, Missouri, who uh, there was about 10 uh, practice. This was a practice-based study. And... Um, Uh, They were coming from the point of view where they thought that there were an awful lot of prescriptions written for sinusitis that did not need to be written. I think we kind of know this. Um, They um, uh, looked at amoxicillin, which was given to uh, patients who they defined as having moderate to severe sinusitis uh, versus um, uh, non-antibiotic care. And uh, this is what I want you to look at. Sinusitis for them (coughs) meant you had to have pain or tenderness on the face or teeth. You had to have purulent secretion, so you had to have both of those, and you had to have symptoms for at least seven days. Or they looked at another pattern where somebody had a cold, got better, and then started to get these symptoms. But it was fairly rigorous. 
they gave one group amoxicillin and uh, one group nothing. Pa patients were allowed to use their own decongestants. So that wasn't controlled. Their outcome measure was called the Sinonasal Outcome Test 16, the SNOT 16 test, uh, which, by the way, has been a validated uh, measure of, uh, of quality of life in uh, patients with sinusitis. They found no difference of antibiotic treatment at day three. They picked day three feeling that that was a time at which they were likely to see improvement. And um, they said, look, 10-day course of amoxicillin, even in this selected patient group, doesn't help. There were some issues with the study. You know, if you went further up out, maybe by seven days there was some improvement. Um, some people said even their criteria were too lax, that they had a lot of people in there just who just had colds, and so therefore you might not have been finding an effect of an antibiotic. And some people said amoxicillin is not the right antibiotic. So that's that study, but nonetheless, they didn't find much with amoxicillin, which was really considered to be a drug of choice when they did the study. Combine that with this paper, which is an IDSA uh, uh, recommendations from 2012. And again, this is what I want you to look at. This is who they said you should consider treating with antibiotics. You have to have symptoms, real symptoms, for 10 days. It can't just be a stuffy nose. Facial pain, purulent discharge, 10 days before antibiotics. Or there's a severe group. If they have high fevers and they're really sick, you might want to push that forward. And then there's that third group who had a cold and then got worse. They say now, the recommendation now is to say, okay, if you're going to treat and you have all those things, give them clavulin. Second line would be doxy. So I think if you put both of these studies together, uh, for me, the real impact is we should all try to avoid giving antibiotics to people who have colds. And um, I don't know about you, I see a lot of people come in and say, I always get sinusitis, my nose is all stuffy, I need antibiotics. But I think you just have a cold. No, 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 I really need antibiotics. And I have to say, I hear that at home sometimes as well. But it's a challenge, because I think it is an area that we're using a lot, of, a lot of bug juice that we don't need. The guidelines that Dr. Yaffe is referring to are called the IDSA Clinical Practice Guideline for Acute Bacterial Rhinosinusitis in Children and Adults by Chow et al. in Clinical Infectious Disease 2012. Now, what they recommend in terms of which clinical presentations best identify patients with acute bacterial versus viral sinusitis is one of three of the following clinical presentations. First, the onset with persistent symptoms or signs compatible with acute sinusitis lasting for 10 or more days without any evidence of clinical improvement. Second is the onset with severe symptoms or signs of high fever of 39 degrees or more and purulent nasal discharge or facial pain lasting for at least three or four consecutive days at the beginning of the illness. And thirdly, the onset with worsening symptoms or signs characterized by the new onset of fever, headache, or increase in nasal discharge following a typical viral upper respiratory tract infection that lasts five to six days and were initially improving. So that's the patient where they start off with a cold, they get better, but then they come back with signs of sinusitis. They sometimes call this double sickening. And in terms of antibiotic recommendations, they recommend clavulin as the first line of treatment. And the dose would be 500 TID or 875 BID in adults to give for 5 to 7 days and in children to give to 10 to 14 days. 
The second line would be high-dose clavulin, that would be 2,000 milligrams BID, or doxycycline, 100 milligrams BID, or 200 milligrams once a day. Again, first line for bacterial sinusitis is clavulin, either 500 TID or 875 BID, for 5 to 7 days in adults, or 10 to 14 days in children. And the second line would either be high-dose clavulin at 2,000 milligrams BID, or doxycycline 100 milligrams BID, or 200 milligrams once a day. All this being said about antibiotics, like Dr. Yaffe said, we probably are way over-treating people with sinusitis with antibiotics. The vast majority of them are probably viral, and so most of them don't need antibiotics at all. Next, Dr. Yaffe is going to talk about an article called Randomized Trial Comparing Intraoral Ultrasound to Landmark-Based Needle Aspiration in Patients with Suspected Peritonsillar Abscess by Constantino et al. in Academic Emergency Medicine in June 2012. This was a, a randomized trial done in Philadelphia where they compared two techniques of draining uh, peritonsillar abscesses. So this was a, a prospective trial. It was a convenience sample. So they went until they got about 28 patients. And these were people who the attending and resident said, this person's got an abscess. I'm going to put a needle in to drain it. Okay, hang on a second. Now we're going to randomize them to one of two groups. One group had, a, had the intracavitary ultrasound probe put in. They sprayed them up. And one group just had attempted needle aspiration of where they thought the abscess was. The primary outcome was the accuracy of diagnosis. So uh, they followed them all up in two days. And they wanted to see, okay, what we thought at the beginning is that what they thought had at the end. And then the secondary was successful aspiration. And uh, these are the numbers. When they used the ultrasound probe, their accuracy was 100%. They saw all the abscesses that they needed to see, and they didn't miss any. When they didn't, there was uh, less accuracy, there were more ENT consults, there were more CT scans done, uh, less successful aspiration of the, of the abscesses. Now, the groups were a little bit differently weighted in terms of how many had abscesses, but I think there was no sense that they had difficulty doing this. I gotta tell you my disclaimers, I'm not a huge ultrasound guy, but everybody I talk to in my limited use says, if you're going to do anything with ultrasound, looking at subcutaneous abscesses really is not difficult at all. They may have had a selection in terms of patients who were able to cooperate, like some people got admitted. But if you get somebody that you're ready to put the needle in, or you're wondering, is this just cellulitis or not, the uh, intracavitary probe looking for an abscess seems to be very accurate. The study was not bias-free. I will tell you, it's not bias-free. The staff who were very interested in this were there all the time, and maybe that helped the success of the study. But there's a couple of other side comments. You know, a lot of the people that we think, oh, yeah, this is a peritonsillar abscess, maybe a third of them don't have an abscess. So by putting the probe on, it might help us tailor an approach to people who, in fact, do not need to be stuck with a needle. And the other thing is that issue about hitting the carotid it's a long way in, at least three centimeters. So you can put a guard on your needle um, to mark the two and a half centimeter mark so that you're not going to get near the carotid.
The next study that Dr. Yaffe is going to talk about is by Birnbaum et al. It's called Efficacy of Patient-Controlled Analgesia for Patients with Acute Abdominal Pain in the Emergency Department, a Randomized Trial. It's from Academic Emergency Medicine in April 2012. You know, it's been known for years and years and years with multiple studies that patients on the floors, for example, patients with cancer, when they use patient-controlled analgesia as opposed to asking the nurse every time they need analgesia, the pain scores are lower and the patients end up using less of the drug and therefore end up having less side effects. So let's hear what Dr. Yaffe has to say about applying this to the emergency department. Another study, efficacy of patient-controlled analgesia for patients in the emergency department. And uh, this was a randomized trial done in the Bronx. They enrolled uh, 211 patients. Uh, They gave them uh, PCA. They had to have pain for more than seven days, and they were, had to be felt to require IV analgesia. So there were three groups. They all got an initial bolus of morphine, and then there was one group that got physician-administered analgesia, and then there were two groups who got PCA at different doses. Their efficacy outcomes were uh, a change in a numerical rating score, pain scale, uh, over the first 30 minutes, and then the area under the curve, which looked at just the global amount of pain that the patients had. And there were some safety outcomes as well. And what they found was, not surprisingly, there was no difference in the first 30 minutes. That's when people got their bolus. But in the ensuing hour and a half, there seemed to be a benefit in favor of the PCA without any compromise of safety and people were happier in the PCA group. You know, these patients were a select group. Uh, They kind of limited people who were already on narcotics who may have been pain-seeking, and so the generalizability might be a little bit off. The doses of analgesic given were really low. Like their average, their doses were about, you know, 15 milligrams or less in the two hours, which is, I think, way lower than what we'd be giving. So... It's hard to know how it would work in real, you know, in a, in a, a, a larger population. And they really didn't talk about cost or logistics. However, um, this stuff is being done up on the floors. It's being done in the ICU. It's probably time that we look at this more closely for emerged departments, especially busy emerged departments, uh, may keep patients and nurses happier, uh, maybe something to look at. The next article that Dr. Yaffe is going to review is called Azithromycin and the Risk of Cardiovascular Death by Ray et al. out of the New England Journal of Medicine, also 2012. In a previous episode of EM Cases, we had talked about the risk of macrolides. We talked about erythromycin. There's there's a few studies that have shown a risk of increased cardiovascular death with these medications. So let's see what Dr. Yaffe has to say about this newest study on azithromycin and the risk of cardiovascular death. This was a study that everybody was talking about. Azithromycin uh, is killing people. This was a retrospective observational study. Uh, The guy who did this study actually has done some other work like this, and there's a group in Toronto doing a lot of work like this where they look at these big databases because they're government databases of uh, government-paid-for medications. So in Ontario, uh, everybody over 65 is covered for their medications. Big databases that help us look at stuff about drugs. And uh, these guys had the same kind of thing, and they said uh, they looked at uh, cardiovascular deaths in patients who took azithromycin, compared it to patients who were on amoxicillin, and then looked at all kinds of events in people who are on other antibiotics or no antibiotics. 
And uh, what they found, the numbers in red suggest that uh, during the five-day period when you were on the azithromycin, but not after, but during that period, there was a small absolute increase in cardiovascular deaths. So it's hard to know what this means because the methodology, there's so many confounding errors. These patients were all not the same. So it's hard to know what to say about this kind of large-scale study that, that looks at associations but doesn't really um, look at causality. Uh, there's not really a good scientific reason why azithromycin should cause sudden cardiac death, although there's, it's been speculated. So we're going to see more studies like this, and this is just why I wanted to put it out there. Uh, I don't know if you remember, there was a similar study which looked at PPIs and clopidogrel. Same methodology and saying we shouldn't be using PPIs and clopidogrel, and then there were a couple other studies came back that refuted it. So I think for the time being, I think azithromycin is probably still safe to use. For those that want to use it, the indications seem to be gradually decreasing. You may want to avoid it in people who have histories of, uh, of arrhythmias or who are on other proarrhythmic drugs. Last study, I cheated. This is a 2013 study, but I thought it was important to mention. So this was a study that was done in a, uh, an STI clinic in uh, Toronto. So a prospective cohort study, and they followed patients for tw- uh, looked at patients over 12 months, and they did routine cultures and tests of cure. So my bet is that almost everybody in this room, when you do testing for GC, are not culturing. Most of us are using uh, uh, nucleic acid amplification tests, which are uh, immune-based uh, tests, do not give you sensitivities. So this is a big issue, number one, because we're not keeping track from what we do of the profile of the bug. Uh, there had been a lot of stuff biochemically which said, you know, suffixime we're starting to see higher MICs. We're starting to see stuff that might be resistance. There hadn't been any studies in North America that actually looked at clinical failure, but there were scattered reports from Asia and Europe about (laughs) clinical failure. These people were interested. So they looked at 291 uh, patients with uh, gonorrhea, and they got 133 to come back for a test of cure. 13 of those patients were positive, In nine of them, they said these were treatment failures because they said, I haven't been re-exposed, and they believed them. So, I mean, that's one of the weaknesses because they could have been re-exposed. But the failure rate, depending on how you slice it and dice it, was uh, as high as uh, 6, almost 7%, as low as 3%. Once you get a 5% failure rate, you got an antibiotic that's felt not to be fully useful. So this was a study that identified clinical treatment failure with the standard doses of cefixi. In fact, some of them actually got 800 milligram doses of cefixi. And uh, the CDC just last year said, uh, we think that anybody with, with gonorrhea should get ceftriaxone. So they've done away with cefixi. The Canadian guidelines still say you can give cefixi, but you have to give 800 milligrams. But there's a lot of caveats. Men who have sex with men, uh, recurrences. There's a bunch of other people who they say, no, the cefixime dose is not good. Give them ceftriaxone 250 IM. It's a huge public health issue because if you now have to start saying to people, you need an injection, you can't go in and get pills, it has a lot of ramifications for 
how are you going to treat people, what their compliance is going to be. For us, who basically work in emergency department-based practices, we have a little bit more latitude. I can't tell you what to do, but I think my practice is now going to be Ceftrax on 250 IM. And the bad news is that I think people think that the days of quinolone uh, effectiveness for, for GC are, are waning. And the other thing is we don't have the infrastructure for culturing and doing tests of cures because it's all gone into the immune testing and we're going to have to rebuild that infra infrastructure. Don't know how that's going to happen. So here's the summary. Hand injury patients on anticoagulants, they need follow-up. CT on anticoagulants and I, I think I'm going to start CTing my patients who are on clopidogrel. I don't think it's a huge number. Sinusitis, don't treat colds, but if you're going to treat, use clavulin. Patients can remove their own non-absorbable sutures. If you think you have somebody with a peritonsillar abscess, try the uh, intracavitary probe as an aid. Seems to work well. Consider a non-azithromycin drug if you think a person has some cardiac risks. And for gonorrhea, either hydrofixine, but I would probably use ceftriaxone. And that's it. Thank you very much. Next up is Dr. Nicole Kester-Green, who's going to talk about the changes in the newest neonatal resuscitation guidelines. Now, resuscitating neonates is not something that we do too often in the emergency department, but when we do do it, it is certainly sphincter tightening. She's going to review some of the most recent changes of the guidelines, but I do urge you to take a neonatal resuscitation course at least every two, three, four years to keep your skills up for neonatal resuscitation. The major changes to the guidelines I'm going to outline now. First, there's a simplification of the algorithm, which we'll have in the written summary. Next, there's an emphasis on avoidance of hyperoxemia, so too much oxygen is bad for babies. Next, there's a refined recommendation on suctioning, that really the only time we should be using suctioning is if the baby is not vigorous and there is meconium. If there's meconium and the baby is vigorous, then there's no evidence that suctioning helps. And certainly, routine suctioning is no longer recommended. Next, there's an emphasis on delayed cord clamping. So rather than jumping to clamp the cord immediately, we should be waiting for at least 30 seconds to clamp the cord. And this has actually been shown to decrease the need for volume resuscitation, to decrease the rate of intraventricular bleed, and to decrease the need for inotropes. Next, there's an emphasis on adequate ventilation. And Dr. Kester-Green will go over all the details of this. Finally, they do talk about a role for therapeutic hypothermia in some of these babies. So here goes Dr. Nicole Kester-Green. There is uh, increased evidence of the importance of mom and baby staying together. And as such, the guidelines for suctioning have been changed. Um, and this is to minimize the disruption between mom and baby's first moments together. There's also lots of strategies recommended to avoid hyperoxemia. We now know that this is injurious to tissues, and it's very important for providers to avoid over-oxygenating the babies. And in adults, although the emphasis has changed from ABCs to CAB, in the neonatal population, the emphasis is still on ABCs, and this is because primary causes for arrest is still respiratory etiology. And next, as I said, avoiding hyperoxemia is very, very important. We know that it's injurious to tissues. 
We also know that babies, a normal healthy term baby, takes approximately 8 to 10 minutes to achieve a saturation of 95%. So trying to rush that process does not offer any advantage. As such, when you begin to resuscitate, you're going to start resuscitating on room air, which is very, very interesting to me, a great departure from what we've done traditionally. So here's the recommendation. For babies who require ongoing resuscitation or respiratory support or both, the goal should be to use pulse oximetry. So what are we talking about here? They're now saying that color is not a good reliable uh, uh, indicator of cyanosis. So color has been taken out of the initial questions. Once you decide that you're going to go ahead with positive pressure ventilation, you're going to start on room air and you're going to put a pulse oximeter on the baby. They've gone so far as to say that the pulse oximeter should go on the right hand or wrist before connecting it to the monitor. And that's so that you can obtain a preductal uh, saturation and get the O2 sat as quickly as possible. This has been determined to be the most reliable and quickest method of getting a pulse oxim- uh, a reading on the probe. Because of concerns about the ability to obtain accurate measurements, pulse oximetry should be used in conjunction with and should not replace clinical assessment of heart rate during newborn resuscitation. So yes, you are uh, going to look at the OT saturation, but heart rate is still your most reliable indicator of the efficacy of your resuscitation. And the way you're going to do that is by listening to the precordium, counting for six seconds, and then multiplying by 10. You can palpate the umbilical pulse, but that's been found to be slightly less reliable than listening to the precordium. So let's talk about the science behind this use of room air resuscitation just a little bit. Most of these um, these studies were predated by animal studies, and this study looked at the effect of resuscitating with room air on mortality at one week and one month, and they compared this group to babies who resuscitated on 100% oxygen. They looked at the incidence of moderate to severe hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, and there were seven studies included babies were all defined as asphyxiated. And what they found is a lower incidence of death in the room air group at one week and one month. And between the two groups, there were similar incidences of hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. So they concluded that room air resuscitation as compared to resuscitation with 100% oxygen decreases mortality at one month and one week. Just remember that between these studies, the definition of asphyxia did vary, and so there is some bias that could potentially be introduced for that reason. So if you're starting positive pressure, pressure ventilation, you're starting on room air. So baby comes out of mom and doesn't look so good. How do we determine the baby's clinical status? Well, besides using the usual stuff like the baby's respiratory effort and the baby's tone, the guidelines are de-emphasizing using the color of the neonate to gauge how well the baby is doing. And rather, they're emphasizing, most importantly, the heart rate, but also pulse oximetry. So the heart rate normally is over 100. And remember that the best way to assess the heart rate is by listening to the precordium. The other way to determine the baby's clinical status is by using pulse oximetry, which should be placed on the right hand or wrist so that it's a preductal O2 sat. And normally, this rises from about 60% at one minute to about 90% at the 10-minute mark. So again, there's a de-emphasis on the color of the baby and an emphasis on assessing the heart rate and the pulse oximetry. 
So this is the next very interesting change, is now the recommendations on suctioning have been revised. Very, very different from what we've done for many, many years. Here's the recommendation, routine intrapartum oral pharyngeal and nasal pharyngeal suctioning for infants born with clear or meconium-stained amniotic fluid is no longer recommended. So for me as a student, I remember being there in the birthing suite, kind of hanging out by the perineum, suction in one hand, coffee cup in the other, waiting for my big chance to go in there and suction. Now we, not, we have to find something new for our students to do. The available evidence does not support or refute routine endotracheal suctioning of depressed infants born through meconium-stained amniotic fluid. So there's no um, RCTs to guide us here on mortality. And so what they're saying is vigorous infants with or without meconium, no need to suction, just towel away the secretions. A depressed infant with meconium, you're going to go ahead and suction the mouth and nose, intubate the trachea, and suction the trachea. Is the baby non-vigorous, so poor tone, not crying, not breathing? you see meconium, you're going to go ahead and suction prior to warming or opening the airway or stimulating the baby. However, if you do assess that the baby is vigorous, even if there's meconium, again, you're not going to suction. Another very, very interesting change, now there's a recommendation to delay cord clamping. Cord clamping should be delayed for at least one minute in babies not requiring resuscitation. Evidence is insufficient to recommend a time for cord clamping in infants requiring resuscitation. So the evidence for this partially comes from this Cochrane review in 2004, which included seven randomized trials, 297 preterm infants, where they delayed cord clamping greater than 30 seconds, and they found there was an improvement in cardiovascular stability. Specifically, it decreased the need for volume resuscitation, transfusion, and inotropic support, and there was a decreased incidence of intraventricular hemorrhage. On the other hand, a later review in 2008 showed that these infants who did have a delay in cord clamping, some of them had an increased incidence of jaundice requiring phototherapy. Another study that they used as a guide was a systematic review meta-analysis. Again, infants, there was a delay in cord clamping of over 30 seconds, included 454 preterm infants and 10 randomized control trials. And they concluded that there was a reduction in intraventricular hemorrhage, which is a major threat to survival. And they also found that early cord clamping decreases initial blood volume in preterm infants. So just to reiterate, in the baby that's requiring resuscitation, there is no guidelines about when or if to delay cord clamping. But in baby, babies who are not requiring intervention and they're term and they're healthy, you can delay cord clamping greater than one minute. There's a lot of emphasis on the importance of achieve, achieving adequate ventilation. So as I said, most babies are rest, it's a respiratory etiology, and so you want to ensure that you're adequately ventilating the baby before progressing to anything else, compressions, giving drugs, that sort of thing. So you really have to be aware that you're not overly bagging that baby. Ideally, you want to deliver 30 centimeters of water. What that means is you want a gentle rise of the chest. I think the tendency is when you're in a resuscitation and emotions are high, you're going to just kind of bag as hard and as fast as you can, but with babies it's important that you not do that. There's a higher risk of barotrauma. 
In preterm infants, there's even a greater sensitivity, and so your inflation pressures are going to be 20 to 25 centimeters of water. The best way, to, first of all, to judge that you're delivering the right inflation pressure is that you should see an improvement of the heart rate. But you also want to think about, again, avoiding hyperoxemia. And so how much oxygen are you delivering with that actual device depends on the device. The bag valve mask is actually the least reliable. Uh, the NRP textbook offers this mnemonic to help providers go through the steps to make sure that they're achieving adequate ventilation. <clears throat> so M is for mask adjustment. So basically, you want to make sure you have a good seal. R is for repositioning the airway. So you want sniffing position. You don't want to hyperextend or flex the neck. S is for suctioning the mouth and nose. If there's tons of secretions and you believe it's uh, preventing you from delivering a, enough oxygenation, then you want to go ahead and suction. O is for opening the mouth. P is for pressure increase, so you might need to increase that inflation pressure. And A is for airway alternatives. So if none of these methods are working, you're not getting an increase in the heart rate, you're going to have to go ahead and intubate or put in an LMA, and that's prior to initiating chest compressions. You've started positive, positive pressure ventilation. You're checking the heart rate. The heart rate's not improving. You're going to go through your Mr. Sopa steps, intubate if you feel that it's necessary, then you're going to go on to chest compressions after that stage. And finally, there's um, increased evidence on the importance of therapeutic hypothermia, specifically in neonates. So this is the recommendation. Newly born infants at or near term with evolving moderate to severe hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy should be offered therapeutic hypothermia. Now, this is going to take you know, it's going to be a multidisciplinary team. There's going to be defined protocols, defined ways of determining if they have moderate to severe HIE. There's a grading system. So this isn't something that we necessarily are going to initiate. It's something that should be done in the intensive care unit. So just as a review, let's go through the algorithm. So the first thing you're going to do is you're going to assess the baby. Are they breathing or crying? Do they have good tone? Are they termed gestation? If the answer is yes, baby goes to mom right away. If the answer is no, and there's meconium, immediately you're going to suction the mouth and nose, intubate the trachea, and suction the trachea before you go ahead with warming and opening the airway and stimulating the baby. Once you've gone ahead to stimulation, now you want to assess, has the heart rate improved with those maneuvers? Is the baby apneic or um, gasping? The answer is yes, you're now going to go on to positive pressure ventilation. Ideally with flow inflating bag, but we tend to reach for is the bag valve mask or the self-inflating bag. And then you're going to attach the pulse oximeter to the right hand or wrist. You're going to be delivering 40 to 60 breaths per minute. You're going to be assessing the heart rate again to see if there's any improvement with those maneuvers. If not, you're going to go through your Mr. Sopa steps. Make sure that you're doing all that you can to ventilate that baby. If the heart rate continues to be low after you've gone through those checks, then you're going to be starting chest compressions. And at that stage, when you're starting chest compressions and somebody's going to trying to be getting IV access, depending on the age of the baby, ideally you want to go for an umbilical vein catheter, but alternatives are an IO because you know it's quick and easy. Often people in, you know, in eMERGE, they're fumbling to get an IV. They're not used to babies this small. So you could go with an IO. And you're starting chest compressions. The rate is 3 to 1. 
you're using ideally the two thumbs hands encircling method and you're compressing the chest one-third of the AP diameter. Once you've done that for 45 to 60 seconds, you reassess the heart rate again. Remember, you're listening to the precordium, you're counting for six seconds and multiplying by 10, and then you're gonna be giving drugs, if necessary, through that UVC line. Just remember that as emergency physicians, the opportunities to practice these neonatal skills are very limited. It's very rare that we have to end up resuscitating babies. So, it's important that you take an NRP or you practice these skills in a simulation setting with colleagues and other staff, a multidisciplinary team, the people that you work with, in order to keep up your skills. Next up is Dr. Shirley Lee, and she's got a talk called Help Doc, I'm Hot and I Don't Know What I Got. Going to give you an overview of fever of unknown origin, highlight some of the commonly misdiagnoses for FUO, the workup and management of FUO. So Petersdorf and Beeson, sort of in 1961, came up with this diagnosis of FUO, and um, the recurrent temperature of greater than 38.3 degrees Celsius. It's really here, 101.1 Fahrenheit on several occasions. So these people often will come in actually with a diary if they're really good. You have to be persistently symptomatic for grading three weeks. Another reason they chose that, interesting enough, is that it takes about three weeks to get all the tests back. <laughs> so that, that's the real reason why they chose three weeks. I, you know, I'm reading the literature on this, and it's like, really? Okay, makes sense. So yeah, if you're symptomatic, and also most self-limiting viral illnesses will resolve after three weeks. Okay, so no diagnosis is found despite thorough investigations. FUO is undiagnosed in five to 15% of cases. So don't feel so bad if you don't get the diagnosis in the merge. The good news is that overall, most of them do quite well, even if you don't find a diagnosis. But what we want to do in the eMERGE is not, is not to miss the ones that actually have life-threatening things that we need to intervene with. So when we talk about etiology, there's four categories that you need to know about with FUO. Okay, and I always think about this when I see someone with a fever and I don't have an obvious cause. The easy ones are the pneumonias and UTIs and that kind of thing. But the four big categories, if you're actually in fever of unknown origin, are infection. That's a big one. That's about 25 to 30% of your cases. So there's a hidden infection somewhere. Neoplasm still counts for another 20%. Okay, and we're talking about the lymphomas or solid tumors. Collagen vascular disease makes up another 20%. Those are lupus, arthritis, uh, giant cell arteritis, those sorts of things. And then the last one, fourth, miscellaneous, makes up another 10 to 20%. That's like your palmy emboli, DVTs can cause a fever. Um, there's a couple of really weird ones, like Kikuchu disease, and that's a cervical adenitis that can go on for months and months that mimics a lot of malignancies, ends up it's benign. Okay, but these kinds of things can cause FUO. So common diagnoses to think about and emerge for FUOs that are missed, okay? And every one of us in our crew will know someone or have been that person who missed one of these diagnoses. The most common one that's missed is actually abscess, retroperitoneal intra-abdominal, especially, okay? So you should have a high suspicion for someone with unexplained fever, even if they don't have abdominal pain per se, okay? If you're starting to work them up for FUO, they, ha they meet that criteria of the three weeks and all that, you should be starting thinking about things like CT abdomen, abscess of the liver, Retroperitoneal abscesses are also common as well. We had a case, I think, about two months ago that showed up in our eMERGE, back pain times three months, uh, intermittent fevers. It's kind of a weird story, and uh, nothing to find neurologically, and up that they had a retroperitoneal abscess. Other things that are common, endocarditis used to be more common with FUO, but because we're better at diagnosing it now with echoes and different types of tests, it's fallen off the FUO markers, but still a very common diagnosis that we don't want to miss. Osteomyelitis, again, common one. See this all the time, the diabetic foots. 
I had the Superior Court judge the other day with this necrotic toe. I could smell it from a mile away with pseudomonas in it. And I'm like, you know, I really don't think that toe's going to stay. I think you have osteomyelitis. And he's like, oh, I don't want to lose my toe. He <laughs> had these discussions. And it was, it was really obvious even on plain x-ray, he had osteomyelitis of his toe. Acute rheumatic fever is still really common. Even though, okay, strep is not as big deal in Canada, that kind of thing, we have a lot of immigrant population. And a lot of them already had it as a child and didn't get treated. So they do come actually with secondary rheumatic fever. So you have to think about it. And then tuberculosis. It's that secret one. You know, it can smolder away. Someone could have an infection 30 years ago. Now they're immunocompromised. They're on steroids. They also have a collagen vascular disease. And then, boom, their TB comes back. So those are actually the big five to think about in eMERGE. So let's review here a little bit. First, the definition of FUO. Remember that it's a fever of 38.3 degrees Celsius or more on several different occasions with symptoms that last for more than three weeks. And they've had a whole bunch of tests that have come up negative. The categories of etiologies for FUO are infection, neoplasm, collagen vascular disease, and miscellaneous. And some of the more common diagnoses that are missed in the emergency department when it comes to FUO are abscess, especially intra-abdominal abscess. So remember to think about doing a CT abdomen, even if patients don't have specific abdominal complaints. Endocarditis, osteomyelitis, acute rheumatic fever, and TB. Okay, diagnostic workup for FUO. So I'm going to preface this by saying this is an infectious disease internal medicine's point of view. They feel that this is the minimal workup for diagnostic FUO. And Dr. Murad, my pals Detsky, these are actually Canadians from Toronto. They published this in Archives Internal Medicine in 2003. So I kind of laugh because this is their absolute minimum workup for FUO. So again, routine CBC, blood films, your routine chemistry, lactate, bilirubin, LFTs, your urine, blood, okay, we got all that. ANA RH factor, I have to admit, I don't order in every FUO. I think it has to kind of fit with the patient profile. HIV hepatitis, okay, again, depends on the patient and risk. Uh, CMV, and then chest x-ray. So this is their minimum. They also then talk about other diagnostic tests to consider in FUO. And again, I mentioned about the CT abdomen. I mean, if you haven't had a good cause found in the initial workup, they feel that this is actually a fairly good test to do despite the radiation, okay? Because it will give you a 20, basically 20% yield for two of the common etiologies, which are abscess and tumor. They talk about doing a late Doppler. Again, it has to be an appropriate patient, okay, with the, the, the story that fits. They talk about TEE, especially if you're thinking endocarditis, like my young guy who'd lost 70 pounds, lost his job, fever's on and off for six months. Everyone thought he was crazy, and uh, he ended up having, actually, endocarditis. Liver biopsy, for sure, and again, the right type of patient population, especially the Asian uh, population, a lot of hepatitis C or hepatic cellular carcinoma. And temporal artery biopsies are probably one of the biggest things to worry about in your elderly population. And I'll preface that by saying elderly, they usually say over 70. But again, you want to always make sure to examine the, examine the sides here, because uh, GCA is actually about 20% of the time the, the reason for FUO in elderly people. So besides intra-abdominal abscess and the other diagnoses that I list in terms of common misdiagnoses for FUO, think about temporal arteritis or giant cell arteritis in your elderly patients with FUO. Next, Dr. Lee's going to move on to the management of the patient with FUO. You want to consider, is this guy actually septic or not? How aggressive do I need to treat them? So you just want to remember your SERS criteria, because this isn't a SERS talk about sepsis in general. But if you're patient has a fever of unknown origin, at least two of these criteria, 
you should treat them as, as though they're septic and actually be considering empiric antibiotics early, okay? So if their temp's actually less than 36, especially in the elderly, that's a sign, too, that they're no, no longer thermoregulating or over 38. So those aren't very high temperatures. If they have a heart rate greater than 90, okay, beats per minute. If the rest rate's greater than 20 or PCO2 is less than 32, or if the white blood cell count is less than 4, greater than 12, or greater than 10% bands. So that's actually a lot of the people we see in Emerge when you think about it. They're actually pretty sick. So just to review the criteria for SIRS, it's a temperature of less than 36 degrees Celsius or more than 38 degrees Celsius, a heart rate of greater than 90 beats per minute, a respiratory rate of greater than 20 or PCO2 less than 32, and a white blood cell count of less than 4 or greater than 12 or more than 10% bands. If a patient presents with FUO and two or more of these criteria, then you should seriously consider giving empiric IV antibiotics. The choices, I could go on and on, okay? But to keep life simple, we still, they still actually recommend Ampingent as the first line, or Ceftriaxone or Chloramphenicol, depending, again, where you're practicing in what country. But give your fluid boluses and antibiotics early. You definitely want to give antipyretics unless it's absolutely contraindicated. Like they say, when I take Tylenol, I blow up and go anaphylactic. If they don't, you give it. Because antipyretics will actually help with their thermal regulation. You can actually even do external cooling if they're really that bad. Cold brains, unmoved, untouched. Now it's time for Dr. Maria Ivankovic. She's an emergency doctor at Credit Valley Hospital in Mississauga, Ontario. And she's going to talk a little bit about wound management pearls. So I'm going to be talking to you about improving wound cosmesis in the ED. And I love this topic as wound management is bread and butter in the eMERGE. And I really feel we need to be experts on things that we deal with every day. And how we manage our wounds can significantly impact not only a patient's function, but also the cosmetic outcomes and their overall satisfaction. And I hope at the end of this that you'll have picked up some pearls on when to use and when not to use particular methods of wound closure, which tongue lacerations actually do require repair and how to repair those, uh, and what to tell patients after you've closed their wound. And I hope you'll remember some of the tips I'm going to talk about while suturing to give you the best cosmetic result. So case one is a 37-year-old female who fell onto a glass table while intoxicated and cut the volar aspect of her right hand and her left brow. So you clean up the wounds and you take a good look at the wrist and you're pretty sure you don't see any glass in there. The patient says, you know doc, there was a lot of small shards of glass everywhere. Are you sure there's nothing in there? Glass is the most common foreign body uh, retained and there was an American Medical Legal Review that found failure to obtain an x-ray in the case of retained glass foreign bodies resulted in an unsuccessful defense in the majority of cases, so over 60%. And the most common reason eMERGE docs said they didn't get an x-ray is because they thought the glass is radiolucent. So although there is some variation depending on how close the fragment is to bone, you can actually see it greater than 99% of the time, So especially if it's larger than 2 millimeters. So when in doubt, I would get an x-ray. So let's say in this case you do get an x-ray, that's negative, so you reassure the patient you don't see anything smaller than 2 millimeters. And as you're getting ready to suture her facial laceration, she says, by the way, I'm leaving for Cuba tomorrow for a week. So keeping that in mind, how would you close this facial wound? 
So here Dr. Ivankovic shows a linear laceration about three centimeters long just above the eyebrow that's gaping a tiny little bit. So let's first talk about the possibility of using glue versus non-absorbable in this case. So glue is certainly the fastest option, uh, and I think all of us are huge fans of that. It's actually about six minutes faster than suturing. And there's lots of good evidence out there that tissue adhesive has comparable cosmetic outcomes to suturing. Uh, however, we have to keep in mind the wounds that were included in these studies. So, for example, some of them only included superficial linear lacerations that were four to five centimeters. And a 2009 Cochrane review actually found that while tissue adhesive is a great alternative to standard wound closure for simple acts, it did find a small but significant increased rate of dehiscence for glued wounds. So, number needed to harm was 40. So, it's great. You know, for simple lax, ideally, you know, even under a cast would be great. It's not so good in moist areas or close to mucosal surfaces. And it's also water-resistant, and it forms its own sort of band-aid that possesses inherent antimicrobial properties. So it's great in that sense. You don't have to cover it. So for absorbables, of course, it's more painful. Uh, the pro, of course, is you can use it anywhere. So you can use it on wounds that are higher risk of infection. So bite wounds, for example, it'd still be okay to use uh, non-absorbable if you're planning on closing the wound. And the benefit, of course, if you do develop an infection, is that you could selectively remove a few sutures without having to take a whole glued wound apart, for example. And there's also less tissue reactivity. So there are rare cases of uh, contact dermatitis and foreign body reactions to glue. So just keep that in mind as well. And of course, it's got greater tensile strength. So glue only has about 50% the tensile strength of a 5-0. And of course, it's more costly and patients usually need follow-up. But as we heard in that study, uh, that Canadian study that Joel mentioned this morning, I think there's a lot of patients that we could discharge with proper uh, instructions for removal and a suture removal kit. So we could consider that in this patient. We do decide to glue. Make sure that you're picking linear, low-tension, clean wounds. Uh, Make sure you've got good hemostasis because if there's any active bleeding when you glue it. You're going to get some oozing of blood stuck in there that's going to dehiss the glue in an attempt to drain. So usually let is good enough to achieve hemostasis. And then once you've irrigated and dried the wound, ideally we should be applying three to five layers. It's supposed to be doing like up to five layers with 30 seconds in between. And 30 seconds is an eternity in the eMERGE if you're going to do that three to four times. So I think three layers with 10 seconds in, uh, in between is just fine. And of course, Avoid getting any glue in the wounds because it can cause a foreign body reaction. And not only that, it can form a barrier between your two wound edges, uh, preventing proper healing. And I often get parents blowing on the wound and they're like spitting in my face, spitting in the kid's face. So you could tell them that that's not gonna, fanning is not going to speed up polymerization. You can also warn the patient that it might feel a bit hot because it's an exothermic reaction. And you get full tensile strength within two and a half minutes, so it's pretty fast. And of course, remind patients not to put any ointments on it because that can dehiss the glue, which is also good to know if you need to remove the glue. If you get it in any unwanted areas, you can use any petrolatum-based products, so all your antibiotic ointments. You can also use mineral oil if you're at home. And of course, if it gets in the eye, you can use the ophthalmic antibiotic ointments. Obviously, you would like to prevent this, so when you are gluing, make sure you've got the patient in a horizontal position, or their wound should be in a horizontal position. And if you're working around the eye, you might even consider putting a border around the eye of a petrolatum-based ointment. So, of course, glue comes off its, uh, on its own, sloughs off in five to ten days. Patients may shower, but they shouldn't soak the wound. So let's say, again, you decided against glue for this patient. We could consider absorbable. 
Now, meta-analysis has shown that non-absorbable sutures seem to be no better than absorbable sutures. However, a larger, more rigorous randomized controlled trial is needed to adequately answer this question. And interestingly, when I was reviewing the studies in the meta-analysis, a lot of them didn't even mention what type of suture technique they use, uh, as in subcuticular versus simple interrupted, but there were several of them that specifically did simple interrupted, which I found a bit surprising, because I think a lot of us think when we're using non-absorbable, we're thinking subcuticular. Having said that, subcuticular is not always the best in traumatic wounds because all the wounds that we're seeing are inherently at higher risk of infection. The fast-absorbing gut may take more than a week to fully dissolve, so you can potentially leave track marks if you're using a simple interrupted. And, of course, it degrades by proteolysis, and that can cause an inflammatory reaction, which can impair healing as well and give you a worse cosmetic outcome. So for now, though, there is still pretty good evidence that it's a good option, Uh, and especially in challenging children who may not tolerate removal or for patients that are unable to follow up, I think it's still a good option. But I think for the vast majority of cases, it's still better to to stick with the uh, absorbable, which is what I would do in, in this case. So just a quick review of tissue adhesive. The cosmetic outcome between glue and sutures is the same, yet glue is faster. Remember that glue can only be used for superficial, linear, low-tension wounds. Wounds that are contaminated or high-tension, you really need to be using sutures. Ensure that you have hemostasis, and one little pearl is you can put some lead on before you apply the glue. Although the manufacturers say you need to put four to five coats on with 30 seconds in between each coat, it's probably okay to put two or three coats on with 10 seconds between each coat. And it takes only 2.5 minutes to achieve its full strength. How about comparing absorbable versus non-absorbable sutures? A good RCT hasn't really been done yet, but the available evidence does show that the cosmetic outcome of absorbable sutures is similar to that of non-absorbable sutures. Patients that you might want to consider using absorbable sutures for are children or patients with unreliable follow-up. Otherwise, it's probably best to go with non-absorbable sutures in general. Next, Dr. Ivankovic is going to talk about tongue lacerations. A three-year-old boy presents after having sustained a laceration to his tongue. There's no other obvious injuries. It's always important with tongue lacerations to do a thorough head and neck exam and also look at all the teeth, check for malocclusion, make sure there's no missing teeth. You know, sometimes they can actually have a tooth stuck in their wound. Uh, So make sure all the teeth are accounted for. So we know that the tongue is very forgiving and it tends to heal very well. So sometimes it's not so clear, well, when do we actually have to suture these? And evidence suggests that most tongue lacerations in children don't benefit from suturing. Uh, and, and most buccal mucosa wounds as well don't require closure. As the mouth is really vascular, it tends to heal very quickly. There are some general guidelines out there on which tongue lacs do require repair. So large ones that are you know, more than one to two centimeters because food can get stuck in there large flaps that can trap food or get between the teeth when you're chewing. Likewise with large gaps, particularly if they're gaping at rest. Of course, uncontrolled bleeding. And lastly, an anterior split or bisecting tongue, uh, because if you don't repair it, they can get what's called a serpent tongue, which not only is unsightly, but also can affect speech and function. And some people actually do this on purpose. I don't know if you've ever seen any of them, but it's kind of creepy. So to repair the tongue... For a lot of patients, you're probably going to need to do IV sedation, especially for children and very anxious patients. 
And for other patients that are more cooperative, you may consider an inferior alveolar block that anesthetizes the anterior two-thirds. But you're probably just fine using local if it's not such a huge uh, wound. You could also just use uh, 4% soaked uh, lidocaine gauze and put it locally on the wound if it's a smaller wound. Now, one of the biggest challenges with suturing these lacerations is trying to keep the tongue still. So if you have anesthetized uh, the anterior two-thirds with, a, with the um, block, you could put in a traction suture, or you can hold it with a towel clip. Uh, you should just get a nurse to, to hold it with gauze for me. Uh, of course, if it's a very complex lac, you're going to want to have better grip for longer, so then I would do the lingual block. And you also want to make sure they don't bite you when you are suturing. So you might make a, a bite block out of gauze wrapped around a tongue depressor and just place it between the upper and lower teeth. So I would use chromic gut, not the fast absorbing, because it dissolves too quickly. And when you are suturing, make sure your sutures pass through at least the half the tongue's thickness. Sometimes it's very deep. You might have to do a two-layered closure and rarely a three-layer closure uh, just to prevent hematoma formation. But for most of the time, you're okay with just one bite. Just make sure you're not overlapping any tissue as well. Now, one of the biggest things to remember with repairing tongue lacerations is the tongue swells a lot. So make sure you're putting in your sutures a little loosely. And you might even put an instrument in before you tie just to make it loose enough. And the other thing to keep in mind is that because of the constant tongue motion, you can get your sutures untied. So you want to tie them at least four times, okay? So four to five knots and loose sutures. And in terms of aftercare, don't forget to warn patients about the swelling. They might consider sucking on ice or for children popsicles to help reduce edema. Also to ask them just to eat soft foods, ideally cool foods, and make sure that they're rinsing after eating. And there's also no good evidence that prophylactic antibiotics prevent infection in mucosal wounds, but you might consider it in a heavily contaminated wound, a delayed presentation, or of course, I mean, a compromised patient. Next, Dr. Ivankovic is going to give us five cosmetic pearls of suturing. Most of us are suturing on every single shift we do. And although this isn't any life-saving procedure, I think it's really important to know how to best achieve cosmesis. So, two more cases. Case four is a 24-year-old female who sustained an extensive lack to her face. It appears to be relatively clean and the underlying structures appear intact. Uh, so I'd like to talk about some of the techniques that we should try and incorporate on a regular basis when we're suturing to get the best cosmetic outcome. So I'm going to talk briefly about each of these techniques, namely edge aversion, minimizing tissue trauma, relieving wound tension, and using a corner stitch and edge excision. So most scars undergo some flattening and contraction. So slight aversion with initial wound closure will give you the best ultimate result. So part of the key is actually even how you're just starting your suture. You want your needle to enter at 90 degrees and you want to roll in an arc which will give you an equidistant entry and exit point. And to do this well, you need to excessively pronate your wrist. And taking more depth and width will give you the desired edge aversion. Otherwise, you're going to get some pitting in the final scar. So always make sure that your suture is deeper than it is wide. Okay? And so if you're doing it correctly, you should get a slight rise of the wound edge above the skin plane. But again, these edges will eventually flatten out with wound contraction. And depending on the area that you're suturing on the body, you might uh, consider using a horizontal mattress, uh, for example, for the back of the hand or the foot. Or a vertical mattress may help you on the earlobe, for example, because it's a common place to have difficulty with edge aversion. Okay. 
You could also avert the wound edges while you're suturing by just using the thumb and, thumb and finger pressure. Just make sure you're keeping your fingers away from the needle, of course. So the second pearl is to minimize trauma to the tissue as much as possible. So if you stretch, twist, or crush the skin or the subcutaneous tissue with your instrument or you strangle it with an, with an overly tight suture, you can cause tissue necrosis, which is going to lead to increased scarring and increased risk of infection. So when you do have to manipulate the edges of a wound, try and use your tooth forceps and gently lift by the subcutaneous tissue, avoiding the skin surface. Smooth forceps are ideally for handling of vessels or trying to remove a foreign body, so stick to your tooth forceps. And then when you're choosing your suture size, select the smallest size that will hold the tissues, um, and that reduces tissue reactivity. And of course, tie your knot secure enough to approximate the wound, but make sure you're not blanching or indenting the skin surface. Okay, so pearl three is relieving wound tension. And so wound tension at the edges can impact capillary blood flow and increase inflammation. On top of that, you can also get skin suture marks just from, from wound tension, so it's not just from tight sutures, but also from wound tension. And the final scar correlates to the force that's required for you to bring the wound edges together. Uh, so it makes a big difference in the, in the ultimate uh, appearance of the scar. And so you can reduce tension in two ways. So undermining of the wound edges and doing a layered closure. And unfortunately, I think that we don't undermine as much as we should. And basically, this technique just releases the dermis and the superficial fascia from their deeper attachments, allowing the wound edges to come together easier. And it's great for the scalp, forehead, or shins. And if you look at the picture, the flap that you're freeing up is about as wide as the wound is at its widest point. So you just hold a 15-blade parallel to the skin surface to incise the dermal layer. You can also use scissors to do the same thing. As some prefer the scissors because you can actually reduce the risk of, of creating a hematoma, theoretically. This technique is not so ideal in contaminated wounds because, theoretically, you could be pushing bacteria deeper into the wound, but a, a good technique to remember for sure. And, of course, layered closure is great for closing dead space. And in addition to reducing tension at the skin surface, the layered closure uh, is particularly important in, in facial wounds as it helps prevent scarring of the muscle to the subcutaneous tissue, which can give you sort of a depressed deformity on the surface of the, of the wound. Quick reminder that when you're putting in your dermal sutures for a layered closure, uh, try and bury your knot so that's less likely to cause irregularity of the skin surface. Okay, and so the fourth pearl is the use of a corner stitch. And this is a really, really important one, actually. It's my favorite out of all these techniques because I feel like we see a lot of corners and flaps, I guess, because the mechanisms we deal with in the eMERGE. But it's important to remember that these flaps are really vulnerable because they're only receiving their blood supply from an intact base. And so if you put a really tight suture in there, you can damage that blood flow. The suture is introduced percontaneously through the skin in the non-corner portion of the wound, and then it's passed horizontally through the corner dermis and then brought back in the same plane of the dermis on the opposite side uh, of the wound. The corner suture is a hard one to visualize, but if you just go to YouTube and you type in corner suture, the first hit is a great video to help you visualize this procedure. Okay. And so the final pearl is edge excision. And I happened to be chatting with one of our plastic surgeons the other day with this talk in mind. And I uh, asked him what things as eMERGE docs he feels we could be doing better. And edge excision was actually one of them. To excise ragged edges for a better wound approximation and to get rid of devitalized tissue, uh, you can use your blade or scissors. 
And try and be conservative with skin debridement um, and your excision because you want to make sure you're not actually increasing wound tension. And the wound edges ideally should be cut at a slight angle so that the epidermal surface of the skin edge juts out just slightly. And uh, that will give you better aversion when you ultimately close the wound. So the five cosmetic pearls of suturing are first, evert the skin edges. So ensure that the needle enters the skin at 90 degrees, take more depth than you do width, and consider a mattress suture, either horizontal or vertical. Second, minimize trauma to tissue. So handle tissue with tooth forceps by the subcutaneous layer using the smallest suture and don't strangulate the tissue. Thirdly, relieve tension. So undermining is something you can do to relieve tension. Take a 15 blade or scissors and cut the dermal adipose junction, but remember that it's not ideal in contaminated wounds or layered closure. Next, use a corner stitch when you have a flap laceration. Use a half-buried horizontal mattress suture, which you can find on YouTube simply by typing in corner suture. And lastly, use edge excision for rough edges. Next, Dr. Ivankovic is going to talk about post-suture care. Let's get back to the case. You just finally finished suturing the young woman's face, and she asks you if you would recommend putting vitamin E on her wound or if there's anything else that she can do to minimize the final scarring. So aftercare instructions you provide your patient are really important. They can have a significant impact on wound healing, infection rates, and final cosmesis. So which of the following should you recommend to improve wound healing and cosmesis? Vitamin E, sunscreen, polysporin, bacitracin, or an antibiotic ointment, keeping the wound uncovered to let it air out and dry. Aloe vera, so the correct answer is sunscreen and topical antibiotic ointment. So in some studies for scar appearance, topical vitamin E application showed no benefit, and in some cases worsened scar cosmesis. And then there's another Italian study that came out in 2010 uh, that showed using vitamin E before surgery and 30 days after surgery improved surgical scars. But there's also other studies that have found increased skin reactions, which of course can impair healing. So the bottom line is further research is needed, so for now I wouldn't recommend it. And so sunscreen is recommended, you know, always pretty much, right? But once the wound is healed and sutures are out, the new skin is more sensitive to sun. So you want to advise your patient to use it for 6 to 12 months to prevent hyperpigmentation. And this recommendation is based on dermabrasion studies and poorly studied overall, but it's generally accepted as effective. Uh, so you can advise your patients to wear a hat or et cetera for the first week or so, and then once the wound is healed and the sutures are out, they can start applying sunscreen. So there is good evidence that topical antibiotics do reduce infection rates for acute minor wounds sutured in the eMERGE. Three small studies found that a petrolatum-based ointment uh, advanced wound healing just as well as topical antibiotics in non-traumatic wounds, and you'll probably find a lot of dermatologists and and, and, uh, surgeons now are uh, asking patients just to put petrolatum on their wounds after the acute phase of healing. And uh, since the risk of wound infection is the highest in the first 48 hours of re-epithelialization, it's reasonable to recommend antibiotic ointment for that period. So I would say two to three days. And then after this point, it doesn't make much of a difference, and it might lead to increased resistance, allergy, and sensitivity. So at that point, they can switch to petrolatum or petroleum jelly. 
And of course, there's good evidence that wounds heal best in a moist environment, so topical ointment can help with this. I don't know if any of you had had patients ask about aloe vera, but I've had a couple of patients recently ask me about this. So I did review the literature and I found a 2012 Cochrane review um, on the effects of aloe on wound healing. And unfortunately, the trials that are out there so far are poor quality and uh, have contradicting results. So right at this point, there's not enough evidence to make any recommendations. Actually, what's coming in the, in the pipeline is the use of uh, numerous growth factors, such as platelet-derived growth factor gel, that's been shown to help heal uh, punch biopsies way faster than control. So maybe that'll eventually get to us. So in this case, what I would advise our patient uh, is to use topical antibiotics for the first two to three days, then switch to petroleum jelly. And she can gently swab away any scabbing on the surface of the wound with a moistened Q-tip. And this is always a good thing to to advise patients because uh, the scabbing actually impairs the epithelialization that's going on. So if they can gently remove that, they actually might get a better GAR result at the end. I'd ask her to remove her sutures in probably closer to four to five days just because of the extent of this wound. And I tell her to wear a hat to protect herself from the sun. And then in about a week, she can switch to sunscreen. And you always have to warn your patients that they're going to have a scar no matter what. But she might not know the final appearance for over 12 months. And for what it's worth, I'd also tell her that most plastic surgeons do recommend massaging the scar uh, twice a day with a lubricant. So our last case is a 58-year-old farmer who fell in a dirty barn. He's diabetic and currently on prednisone for one of his very frequent COPD exacerbations. So how would you close this wound? Here, Dr. Ivankovic shows a large flap laceration on the shin of this patient that looks kind of dirty and kind of deep. With this case, she'll be discussing the value of delayed primary closure. I think we don't think about this enough, and it's really important. And this was used a lot during the First World War when antibiotics were not around. And the potential benefit of delayed primary closure in highly uh, contaminated wounds is very well established. And essentially, if a wound is going to get infected, it's going to happen in the first 48 or even 72 hours. So if you leave a wound open, you're substantially decreasing the risk of this getting infected, especially in a high-risk patient in a high-risk area like this. And so this wound can be reevaluated in, in about three days to see if at that point there's no infection, it could be closed. So we shouldn't be closing lax if there is visible contamination, debris, uh, if there's lots of non-viable devitalized tissue there. And so it's wise to consider a delayed closure uh, in wounds that have extensive edema, such as a crush injury, or in wounds that are higher risk of infections that present after six hours, or in patients that are diabetics uh, who are on steroids, uh, and, and basically in this gentleman, or it's on the lower limb as well, which is higher risk. So what you would do for these wounds is you want to obviously copiously irrigate it and definitely debride any devitalized tissue and soil and grit. Remember to try and remove it as much as possible because you can get permanent tattooing. Don't use gauze because that is so painful to remove once it's dry. And so even those wet to dry dressings, they say saline soaked gauze on the wound, it just gets meshed into the wound and it's just killer to take off. And not only that, the fibers that get stuck in the wound can cause a foreign body reaction. So it'd be better to use something like Mepitel or Tegaderm foam. Uh, and you want to use tons of ointments, or you can use Iodazorb even, or Aquaphor. But make sure you're, you're, you're using something that's sort of non-adherent. 
And then you have the patient follow up with the plastics in three to four days uh, for consideration of a delayed primary closure. And sometimes these can be closed as early as 48 hours. And this is the type of case that you definitely want to put them on prophylactic antibiotics, and ideally within six hours of the laceration having happened. So I would give this gentleman a dose of IV ANSEF in the eMERGE. For our summary, so make sure you're picking the right wound for different closure techniques, considering the limitations of each. Suture your tongue lacs are greater than one to two centimeters, uh, gaps, flaps, and anterior splits. And remember the five suturing pearls uh, that we talked about to improve cosmesis and, and try and use them in your everyday practice. So averting skin edges, minimizing trauma to tissue, relieving tension, and using the corner stitch and edge excision. And advise patients to use antibiotic ointment for the first two to three days, and then they could switch to petrolatum. And think about delayed primary closure for your heavily contaminated wounds. Next up is Dr. Sarah Gray. She's an emergency physician and Next up is Dr. Sarah Gray. She's an emergency physician and an intensivist at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, and she's going to talk about liver enzymes, liver function tests, and biliary disease. Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look through causes of uh, high LFTs. Uh, we're going to try to develop an approach to working through these, um, talk about imaging studies, what we should be using when, and talking importantly about what are the diagnoses we don't want to miss. What do we want to make sure we're not sending home from our emergency department? Here's my approach. Okay, when I get back test results and they're showing me that the LFTs are high, I've got two things I want to figure out. One's the diagnosis, one's my disposition for the patient, right? So in terms of my diagnosis, I'm looking at the LFTs and I want to break them down into, is this an obstructive pattern? Is this a hepatocellular pattern or a transaminitis? Is this a synthetic problem of liver function? Is my liver, in fact, not actually working well? So your AST and your ALT show you hepatocellular injury. They show you actual damage to the liver cells themselves, right? This is also called the transaminitis. Our term that we use, liver function, is actually a little bit of a misnomer because not all of these are actual functional tests of the liver. So these technically show you a hepatocellular injury or transaminitis. Bilirubin, ALK-FOS, and your GGG show you obstructive disease commonly, biliary disease. Okay, so if you have cholestasis, if you've got uh, cholecystitis, these are the ones that are going up. GGT also goes up in alcoholic liver disease, not quite as specific, but those are your typical obstructive LFTs are right here. Albumin, PT, and INR, your coags, these are functions of your liver. These are the, technically the liver function tests. Your liver is necessary to be appropriately functioning to give you a normal albumin and normal coags. So if those are abnormal, it suggests underlying abnormality and actual the synthetic function of your liver. Hepatitis screens we don't send as often. I don't. Hep A, Hep B, Hep C. And we're going to talk about serum ammonia for hepatic encephalopathy in a few minutes. We don't send that very commonly at all. It's just worth knowing as a fact. Here Dr. Gray is going to talk about ultrasound findings for acute cholecystitis. A classic ultrasound which shows stones in the gallbladder itself. The gallbladder wall is thickened. Less than three millimeters is normal for a gallbladder wall. Greater than that shows inflammation or a thickened wall. 
and you have some free fluid beside the gallbladder here. So these are all the classic signs of cholecystitis on ultrasound. Now, do any of your radiologists ever put on your, the report they have a sonographic Murphy sign? Right? Is everybody clear on what that is? That's when they're visualizing the gallbladder, they're pressing down on it with the ultrasound probe and the patient is wincing or, or showing signs of pain with that. This actually has a positive predictive value of greater than 95% for acute cholecystitis. A really, really good, better than our LFTs, frankly, in terms of its positive predictive value. So if your radiologist come back to you with a sonographic Murphy sign, that's a pretty solid evidence of acute cholecystitis. I took a bit of time to look into the evidence for antibiotics in patients with cholecystitis because it seems like the practice patterns vary quite a bit and I wanted to find out whether giving antibiotics in the emergency department for our patients with cholecystitis actually made a difference. Now, if you're talking about mild cholecystitis, the most recent RCT was out of the World Journal of Surgery in August 2012. It was entitled, Role of Antibiotic Therapy in Mild Acute Calculus Cholecystitis, a Prospective Randomized Control Trial. And in this trial of 84 patients, they randomly assigned patients to supportive treatment only or supportive treatment with IV antibiotics. Patients in the IV antibiotic arm did not differ significantly in resumption of regular diet, hospital length of stay, the rate of percutaneous cholecystotomy two placement, readmissions, and perioperative course. The overall hospital length of stay, including initial hospitalization and subsequent cholecystectomy, were similar in both groups. They concluded that IV antibiotics does not improve the hospital course or early outcome in most of the patients with mild acute cholecystitis. So this is only one randomized prospective trial, and if you look at the older literature, there's really no good evidence that treating patients with mild cholecystitis with antibiotics really makes any difference. This is something that you should speak to your surgeons about to see whether all your patients with cholecystitis should be receiving antibiotics in the emergency department, or whether you should just selectively be choosing patients to receive IV antibiotics. Next, Dr. Gray is going to talk about early versus delayed surgery for cholecystitis. They're getting a general surge consult for the timing of the operation to have their gallbladder out. At my place, they still like to do delayed removal of the gallbladder. I don't know what they do at your hospitals. There's some evidence now showing that delaying gallbladder removal by six weeks is not actually helpful. The argument for delaying is that it gives time for the inflammation and the infection to settle down and easier operation to perform six weeks out. There's newer evidence that shows there's actually no difference in surgical mortality and morbidity rates and that patients may benefit from having it earlier. So I think there's still a lot of controversy about that in the literature. Either way, I think our job is to have these people seen by general surgery in the short term so they can decide when they want to operate. The other thing I wanted to look at was the evidence for delayed versus early cholecystectomy in patients with acute cholecystitis. A Cochrane review of this was done in 2006. It was entitled Early versus Delayed Laparoscopic Cholecystectomy for Acute Cholecystitis. And they compared early laparoscopic cholecystectomy, that is less than seven days of onset of symptoms, versus delayed laparoscopic cholecystectomy more than six weeks after the index admission with regards to benefits and harms. They included five trials with 450 patients. There was no statistically significant difference between the two groups for any of the outcomes, including bile duct injury and conversion to open cholecystectomy. The total hospital stay was about three days shorter in the early group compared with the delayed group. 
and the authors concluded that early laparoscopic cholecystectomy during acute cholecystitis seems safe and shortens total hospital stay. There was another Cochrane review done in October of 2008 entitled Early versus Delayed Laparoscopic Cholecystectomy for Biliary Colic. These are patients without evidence of cholecystitis and just simply have stones with pain. There was only one trial of 75 patients. They randomized to early laparoscopic cholecystectomy, that's less than 24 hours after the diagnosis, and delayed laparoscopic cholecystectomy. The mean waiting period was about 4.2 months. So during the waiting period in the delayed group, the complications that the patient suffered included severe acute pancreatitis resulting in mortality, empyema of the gallbladder, gallbladder perforation, acute cholecystitis, cholangitis, obstructive jaundice, and recurrent biliary colic requiring hospital visits. The rate of conversion to open cholecystectomy was lower in the early group than the delayed group. There was a statistically significant shorter operating time and hospital stay in the early group than the delayed group. 35% of patients required hospital admission for symptoms related to gallstones during the mean waiting period of 4.2 months in the delayed group. And so the authors concluded that based on evidence from this trial, it appears that early laparoscopic cholecystectomy decreases the morbidity during the waiting period for elective laparoscopic cholecystectomy, decreases the rate of conversion to open cholecystectomy, decreases operating time, and decreases hospital stay. They do say that further randomized trials are necessary to confirm or refute this finding. So be that as it may, of course, it's up to your surgeon to decide when to do the surgery, but you may want to consider advocating for your patients who have recurrent horrible biliary colic or who have cholecystitis to get their surgery earlier rather than having it delayed. It also depends on your patients. A study out of Israel tried to look at what clinical and radiographic factors predicted failure of conservative treatment. So let's say the surgeons decided to go with just antibiotics and delayed surgery. What factors could predict failure of this strategy versus doing early surgery? So this study was called Conservative Treatment for Acute Cholecystitis, Clinical and Radiographic Predictors of Failure. This was a prospective study where they tried to identify clinical and radiographic factors leading to failure of conservative treatment. And they enrolled 103 patients with a mean age of 60 who were treated for acute cholecystitis. So these tended to be older patients. And they found that age above 70, diabetes, tachycardia at admission, and distended gallbladder were predictors for cholecystotomy and age above 70 and a white blood cell count were predictors for failure of conservative treatment after 24 and 48 hours. So they concluded that age above 70, diabetes, and a distended gallbladder are predictors for failure of conservative treatment, and such patients should be considered for an early cholecystectomy. So with these studies in mind, I think it would be pertinent to speak to your surgeons and come up with a strategy that you can all agree with and decide together which patients need antibiotics in the emergency department and which patients should be considered for immediate surgery versus delayed surgery.
Sixty-year-old lady with gallstones. She's found confused by her husband at home. He brings her into the emergency department. Uh, she does have a fever. She's got abdominal pain, and she's a little bit jaundiced. We had a debate about the jaundice, actually, in the department. There's a study. Did you know women are better at seeing jaundice than men at low levels of bilirubin? So it was a study done by one of the hepatologists at UHN. I'm still not sure why they did the study, uh, but it's apparently true. Uh, I, I can't tell you why. I still find it an interesting fact. Okay, so hypotensive. What are we worried about here? Cholangitis, yes, right? So cholangitis comes with all these eponyms associated with it. Charcot's triad is the common one for cholangitis. So Charcot was this... French neurologist back in the 1800s, but he was kind of interested in everything because he made a Charcot's triad for MS, which was his main line of research, but then he also made the Charcot's triad for cholangitis, which was a little out of his range, but he did it anyway. So that's fever, right upper quadrant pain, and jaundice. The classic teaching for this, and I guess this shows up on a lot of exams, is that this is the clinical triad you look for in cholangitis. There are studies that show only about a third of patients are actually going to have all three of these clinical markers, even if they have cholangitis. And then the more severe form for cholangitis is Reynolds Pentad, which includes the first three, plus altered mental status and hypotension. And that's just showing they've got a more severe form of the disease. Okay, so these were her lab tests. She has a white count of 15. Uh, platelets are up a bit. She's got a small elevation of her transaminases, her ALT. ALKFOS is about double normal. Bilirubin's 168. She also has an elevation of a creatinine, and her lactate's 4.6. So this for us would be consistent with our cholangitis, right? So if we break this down, she looks like she's got obstructive disease here. Her ALKFOS and her bile are high. Uh, and cholangitis, as you know, you have your stone impacted there. The infection is spreading back up towards your liver. This inflames or irritates your liver, and that's why you're getting a transaminitis at the same time. Ultrasound shows dilated intrahepatic ducts and a large common bile duct stone. There's no specific number for size. That means small versus large for the intrahepatic ducts. The radiologists tend to do it by gestalt rather than a specific measurement. Uh, but these were read as dilated or enlarged, which is one of the signs of cholangitis. So while the radiologists use gestalt to tell you whether the intrahepatic ducts are dilated or not, the common bile duct should not be any more than 6 millimeters in diameter in the normal patient. So if they're 7 or more millimeters, that's abnormal. Now, it's controversial out there as to whether the normal size for the common bile duct increases with age. There's some literature that suggests that it does, and there's some literature that suggests that it doesn't. So the bottom line is more than 6 millimeters, consider it abnormal. 6 millimeters or less, consider it normal. Back just to remind you of our approach uh, that we're working our way through here. In terms of the diagnosis, this lady had certainly an obstructive picture, but also some signs of hepatocellular injury, right? And so her imaging was really important in us being sure of her diagnosis, which was cholangitis. Here are our treatment <laughs> options. They do get broad early antibiotics, certainly useful. There are a whole variety of regimens. You don't necessarily have to use any of these, um, but you want something with both gram-positive, gram-negative coverage. Uh, Piperacillin tazobactam is often recommended because it's got biliary excretion, so it's going directly to the involved site, uh, but it's not, you know, there are lots of other available options to you. Source control, though, is key. Antibiotics alone aren't going to make these people better. 
they need that stone obstruction relieved to decompress the infection and let it drain. So antibiotics alone are not enough. These people are going to need to see a gastroenterologist. Typically, they're going to go for ERCP to have the stone removed. And at the same time, they're going to need resuscitation for their shock. Cholangitis has a really significant mortality associated with it. These people can be very sick, and it's important that we're making this diagnosis and not missing it. Case four. 22-year-old female. She's vomiting, abdominal pain. She feels a bit weak. She says, I quote, my tan looks funny. She had, uh, she had gone to the Dominican, and she was one of these people who could, she, she liked, she tanned regularly. She went to the tanning salons. Um, she'd gone to the Dominican for Christmas. I saw her just the other week. She got back um, it, like from the Dominican six weeks ago. While there was drinking uh, the tap water and ice cubes available at her resort. Um, she had gone with some friends. She did say it wasn't the fanciest resort. Okay, what are we worried about here? <laughs> Worried about hepatitis A, right? Uh, what do we do for hepatitis A? See, everybody's like, it's okay, we don't see this all that much, right? So you're expecting to see that transaminitis. They often have a high bilirubin as well. We send our viral serology, although we don't get it back for, I don't know, a day or two, a while. So they're probably not going to get it back on that visit, but it's going to be useful, hopefully, for whoever they're following up with. We always think about alcohol as a cause for presentations of hepatitis, but for her the timing didn't really work. She said she wasn't much of a drinker. She did drink while she was in the Dominican, but this is now six weeks later. You're going to see alcoholic hepatitis a lot sooner than that, whereas hep A is going to have this presentation delayed by several weeks, and imaging for this is generally normal and not necessarily contributory. We did not ultrasound her, although if you wanted to or you were worried about other causes, you could. So here's how hep A goes. They get exposed at week zero, and nothing happens for several weeks. They don't even get a viremia for about three weeks, typically not symptomatic until somewhere in the four or five week mark. So this is a delayed presentation, typically. It doesn't happen very fast. They're coming in with jaundice, with weakness, with vomiting. That's sort of the classic story for hep A. It's pretty common, particularly in the returned travelers. Okay, so treatment, supportive care, really just management uh, with rehydration and something for their nausea. If you have someone who can follow them up, then they can go home uh, as long as they're tolerating PO. There are certain groups that we consider admission for if they're pregnant, otherwise immunosuppressed. Very young babies or elderly people are obviously at higher risk, um, but otherwise most of these patients can go home just with supportive care. The only other group that we worry about is people who have underlying hepatitis C. There's an interaction between hep A and hep C that leads to an exacerbation of their disease, can push them into fulminant liver failure. If you have somebody with underlying hep C who also is unfortunate enough to get hep A, that's a risk category to worry about and make sure they are either coming in or that they have really close follow-up. And obviously, getting vaccinated before you go south is an excellent idea. Fifty-eight-year-old guy, well-known. He has a history of ethanol, varices, and cirrhosis. Uh, he was brought in by his landlord after he was found on the floor in his room. He said he had been vomiting for several days previously and unwell, sort of in bed for several days. Uh, he's currently not vomiting in the emergency department, but he is disoriented. He's tremulous. He seems confused. When you go to do your physical exam, he would do this. 
Asterisks, I can't really say that word. It's good that you know what it is, right? Uh, what are we worried about here? Hepatic encephalopathy, yeah? I don't send a lot of serum ammonias. Really, I've sent. I could probably count on one hand how many I've ever sent. Um, but for the hepatic encephalopathy person where I'm convinced this is the diagnosis, we will send it. It takes a day or something to come back to me. So it's not a number I have immediately at my fingertips in the emergency department. So here I'd like to talk a little bit about hepatic encephalopathy. The first important point about hepatic encephalopathy is that it's a diagnosis of exclusion. When you're faced with a patient who has a change in behavior or an altered mental status and has a history of liver cirrhosis, you need to consider all the other causes of altered mental status before you assume hepatic encephalopathy. Often the patient with hepatic encephalopathy will have recurrent episodes, so if you can get that history, it helps to rule in the diagnosis. Even if you're convinced that the patient has hepatic encephalopathy, you need to actively search for precipitating factors like GI bleed, spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, renal failure, and acute deterioration of liver function, because often these are associated with the hepatic encephalopathy. Asterixes, fetterhepaticus, and fluctuating Lontrac signs are things you want to look for on clinical exam, but they have poor specificity and sensitivity for hepatic encephalopathy. In the right clinical setting, they can aid in the diagnosis. So let's talk a little bit about the treatment of hepatic encephalopathy in the ED. This all depends on the severity of the encephalopathy. Severe hepatic encephalopathy may present with an acute liver failure patient who's comatose and requires intubation. Many of these patients will have cerebral edema, so look for signs of raised ICP, and if you find any, consider giving mannitol IV. When patients are this sick with acute liver failure or have an unexplained progression of encephalopathy or they fulfill criteria for SIRS, they should be given empiric broad-spectrum antibiotics as well. For all patients with suspected hepatic encephalopathy, even if it's mild, the patient should be made NPO, given IV D5W, and given lactulose 40 cc's PO or via NG tube Q1H until the patient's had a bowel movement. After that, they usually require about 30 cc's TID of lactulose. Using lactulose brings up the topic of whether or not we should draw ammonia levels in the ED for patients suspected of having hepatic encephalopathy. If we assume that lactulose works for hepatic encephalopathy, which is a bit tenuous since there's no good randomized control trials for this, then it makes sense to get an ammonia level in the ED, since lactulose works by decreasing ammonia that gets into the portal circulation from the gut. However, there's been a lot of controversy over the role of ammonia in the pathophysiology of hepatic encephalopathy, and studies have shown that there's poor correlation between ammonia levels and the degree of mental status change in hepatic encephalopathy. It's not uncommon to see severely encephalopathic patients with normal ammonia levels, so a single normal ammonia level does not rule out hepatic encephalopathy in a patient with chronic liver disease. Also, serial levels don't correlate with the clinical evolution of hepatic encephalopathy. The important take-home message here is that the diagnosis of hepatic encephalopathy is a clinical one rather than a lab one. Ordering an ammonia level in the ED is probably of limited value and can be misleading. Nonetheless, most of these patients are going to be admitted and the admitting physician will probably want an ammonia level. Next, Dr. Gray will talk about some of the other important complications of chronic liver disease that we see in the ED.
38-year-old lady with ethanol abuse. Uh, she's intoxicated. We get a lot of intoxicated people who come to my place. Uh, she's got abdominal pain. She's a past history of cirrhosis. She was a little tachycardic, temperature of 38, uh, and quite tender, but diffusely. Not, not just in her right upper quadrant, the way some of our liver patients are, sort of all over her stomach was sore. Not an acute surgical abdomen, though. I sent some labs. Shows a little bit of a white count, 13. Platelets are a little low. Her AST and her total bilia are up which is not necessarily clearly falling into any of my patterns, right? Sometimes patients haven't read the textbook and don't come with exactly what I want them to come with. Uh, She was one of these. Uh, Her albumin's a little low, right? And her coags are up. So I'm certainly worried about the synthetic function of her liver and what her underlying liver, how severe her underlying liver disease is. Creatinine's also high. uh, And she's still intoxicated, ethanol 56. So I was worried about SPP, spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, was worried about hepatitis, and then was there anything else I could find that was going on. Uh, We did do an ultrasound uh, which showed ascites, and so we went on to do paracentesis. So when you're getting the results of your paracentesis, classically the definition is that we're treating if the neutrophils are greater than 500, although because people worry about missing this disease and because it can have significant consequences, guidelines for treatment are if you find anything greater than 250 cells. It's also suggestive if your pH is low. Uh, So pHs of less than 7.34 are consistent. So when I do a paracentesis, I'm usually sending it for the cell count, for the pH, and I send it for a culture. We do tend to check the INR and platelets before we do this. Um, this is because this, you know, this isn't necessarily guideline-based. We've just had a few people who end up having an INR of six or seven that we weren't aware of, and after you do the paracentesis and it keeps bleeding and keeps bleeding, uh, you wish you had checked prior. Um, so now we routinely will have a look beforehand. So this brings up what the contraindications to paracentesis are. The only absolute contraindications to paracentesis are an acute abdomen requiring surgery, DIC, and thrombolysis. In terms of relative contraindications, first there's severe thrombocytopenia, that is a platelet count of less than 20, and an elevated INR. There's no guidelines on exactly what degree of elevation of INR is a contraindication for paracentesis, but some recommendations for the cutoff for correcting INR before paracentesis have ranged from an INR of greater than 2 to an INR greater than 5. Patients with an INR of greater than 2 should probably get FFP before you stick a needle into their belly, even though there's no studies supporting this. One strategy that's sometimes used to help improve efficiency is to infuse one unit of FFP before the procedure and then do the procedure while the second unit is infusing. Patients with a platelet count of less than 20 should receive an infusion of platelets prior to performing the procedure. Other relative contraindications include abdominal wall cellulitis, distended bowel for whatever reason, and in these patients it might be wise to put an NG tube before doing your paracentesis, and intra-abdominal adhesions are another relative contraindication. So those patients who have had multiple surgeries on their belly or have a known intra-abdominal CA. It helps to know what the incidence of these complications are and which patients you need to worry about getting complications. There was a study of 608 patients, most of them with alcohol-related liver disease, that found a low overall rate of complications that required transfusions, only 0.2%. The patients who had a higher incidence of significant hemoglobin drop were patients with severe renal failure. 
So be sure to check not only the platelet count in the INR, but the creatinine as well before doing your paracentesis. The rare complications of paracentesis can be minimized with the use of ED ultrasound so that you're sure that you're not hitting bowel with your needle. So, spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, very common, uh, particularly in alcoholic cirrhosis with ascites. This is the classic group that gets this disease. The theory is that you get bowel edema, and this causes translocation of bacteria from inside your GI tract into the peritoneal space, which causes the infection. E. coli is most common. Again, they're getting broad-spectrum uh, antibiotics. Uh, it's going to depend on your center, what your E. coli resistance uh, patterns are, and they're getting admitted. Okay, do we remember her creatinine was 150 or so, it was high. What are possible reasons why it could be high? She could be dry, could just be pre-renal, could be hepatorenal. So I just want to spend one moment on hepatorenal syndrome. Chances are being pre-renal is much more likely. Yes, we see this all the time, this is common, may just need some volume, that's okay. But hepatorenal syndrome is bad this vastly increases your mortality from your liver disease. There's no good treatment for it. And the diagnosis is a little bit complicated. We're not normally making this diagnosis in the emergency department. It's something our nephrologists are doing. But when I see a liver patient with a high creatinine, I get a little bit more worried. So I raise this for you only because if you have a patient that is borderline for going home, and you think maybe they're gonna be okay, but their creatinine is double normal, I would lean towards having that patient seen and admitted, okay? Just because it is such a significant impact on their potential mortality and prognosis if they have hepatorenal. Having both your liver and your kidneys failing is very bad for you. Okay, teaching summary. Sonographic Murphy's has a high positive predictive value. So that's a useful thing. That may be something we could even learn uh, to do ourselves, to find the gallbladder and press on it, although I must confess I am not that good at that. Cholangitis is lethal, doesn't just need antibiotics, also needs decompression to get that stone out of there to fix those people. Paracentesis, if you're worried about spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, we're treating pretty aggressively for neutrophils greater than 250. And if you have liver failure and renal failure, be a little bit worried. Be careful with those people because their mortality is very high. Next up is Dr. Donna Goldenberg. She's a pediatrician at the Hospital for Sick Children and Credit Valley Hospital in Toronto. She works as both an emergency physician and a pediatrician. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Toronto, and she's going to talk about a potpourri of pediatric cases in the emergency department. I'm going to talk about a bunch of cardiac and pediatric cases that I've been, most of which I've been involved in in my community hospital. I'm going to be able to tell you what happened with these kids in follow-up because that's probably the, the most interesting part of my job that I see the kids in the emergency and I get to follow up and find out what, what actually happened to them. So the first case is a 14-year-old boy who comes in with chest pain. So he's a black boy, average height and weight, completely well, no medical history, 
Three days before I saw him, he had the onset of chest pain while playing video games. Of course, what do most kids do these days anyway? He described it as pressure. Independently said, it feels like I have pressure on my chest. Didn't have any cough, fever, nausea, or vomiting. So what do you want to know from this kid when you're seeing him in the emergency room? So he doesn't have sickle cell. That's a very good question, though. Acute chest syndrome is a relatively common complication of sickle cell disease, and it's the most common cause of death in these patients. It usually is triggered by infection, but can also be triggered by a vasoocclusive crisis or just asthma. By definition, acute chest syndrome involves a new lung infiltrate, plus some combination of fever, chest pain, tachypnea, cough, and dyspnea. So basically, it's a picture of bacterial pneumonia in a patient with sickle cell disease. It's important to remember that while fever is common in kids with acute chest syndrome, it's often absent in adults. The other pearl is that infiltrates don't usually appear on the chest x-ray until two or three days into the illness. And if there are chest x-ray findings, they usually underestimate the degree of lung involvement. So this often becomes a clinical diagnosis in the emergency department. The majority of these patients develop pulmonary hypertension, which, if present, is associated with a higher mortality, and patients with sickle cell disease are at higher risk than the general population for PE. So you need to think about venous thromboembolic disease in patients with sickle cell disease who present with chest pain. But what about treating these patients in the ED? Treatment of acute chest pain syndrome is mostly supportive, with pain management, oxygen, empiric antibiotics, and maintaining good hydration. Many of these patients do require blood transfusions as well. A great pro when it comes to treatment is that NSAIDs may actually worsen acute pain syndrome and should be avoided. Many of these patients will get intercostal nerve blocks and patient-controlled analgesia to control the severe pain that they often have with this. Dr. Goldenberg is now going to continue with the case. So most of the kids that we see with chest pain, I have to say, are not cardiac, right? So what are they? Most of the kids we see are MSK, right? So obviously the things that we want to know are on the chance that it's related to some viral thing. We want to know if he had an intercurrent illness. But really, was there any trauma? Did he do any new sports? majority of kids that we see have chest pain because of an activity. And it's, it's MSK pain. So these were all negative. He was playing video games. He had pressure. It got worse. Persistent pressure for two days, he woke up in the middle of the night with increasing pain in his chest, came to the emergency room at four in the morning. Family history is negative for cardiac disease. He was actually asleep when I was, when I was called to see him. When I woke him up, he said, I don't have any chest pain anymore. I examined him, it was normal. He had normal heart sounds, no murmurs, no rubs, no nothing. So what investigations would you do? So he had a CBC done, he did have a sickle cell screen, that was negative. His electrocardiogram was normal. His troponin was 11. So, I mean, I know nothing about troponin. I'm a pediatrician. I, you know, but when the eMERGE doc called me and said it was 11, he said, it's 11. I said, oh, I don't know what that means, but okay. So anyway, he had myocarditis. And um, myocarditis is usually viral, enteroviruses. Majority of children present with acute disease. So there's a mean distribution of nine years, but bimodal from infants and adolescents are when we see it most. Usually they would have fever, myalgia, something a few days before, and then they go into heart failure, and they could have anything from respiratory distress, gallops, murmurs, rubs, all kinds of things which this kid had none of. And the investigations could be chest x-ray is normal or cardiomegaly, 
EKG is normal or abnormal, totally not helpful. Cardiac enzymes, they have an elevated troponin, and they, do, they get an echocardiogram to assess for ventricular function and to exclude structural heart disease. So what happened to this boy? Well, of course, I admitted him because the troponin was 11. <laughs> I ordered some Advil. He had an echocardiogram. He had a cardiology consult because I do have a pediatric cardiologist who I work with, and we were going to watch for serial troponins. So this is what happened to him. His echo was normal. He had no further chest pain from the minute he came into hospital, and I guess the Advil might have been helping, not helping. I don't, I don't know. This is what happened to his troponins. They went down on the first day. They went up on day two, and they came down by day three. He was discharged home. He was seen in follow-up in cardiology clinic. But the second day EKG, there were ST elevations with that second rise in troponin. And he was totally well. He went home. He's been totally well. And that was his myocarditis. I wanted to show you this case because when I saw this kid with chest pain and with this troponin, he had a completely uncomplicated course. And I'm going to tell you about the story about the next 13-year-old boy who had the opposite extreme of myocarditis. So this, this child came to hospital. The parents called an ambulance for altered level of consciousness and suspected seizures. He had episodes of 30 seconds of seizure, followed by complete, com- being completely lucid and answering questions and going back into these 30 seconds of seizures. And he said that he felt chest tightness prior to these episodes. He did have a history of fever and abdominal pain the day before. In the ambulance, his BP was unobtainable. His SAT was, was low. He was getting uh, oxygen. He was bradycardic. And he was having these, what the ambulance attendants described as seizures en route, each lasting 10 to 30 seconds. They had strips of his rhythm. He was going in and out of V-fib that I think was this, um, these seizure episodes that he was having. Anyway, a code was called. And they intubated him. They did a full code resuscitation, arterial lines. His troponin was 6 They kept this kid alive by giving him boluses of epinephrine and compressions and another bolus of epi and compressions, and they started an epi infusion, and finally an adult cardiologist came and put in an external pacer and transferred him. But he ended up being entirely well when he got over this episode. But just to show you the difference of myocarditis from one extreme to the other. I'm not going to spend any more time on cardiac stuff because I think every pediatrician's biggest nightmare in the emergency room at SickKids is that a kid is going to walk in with a heart attack and none of us are going to know that it is a heart attack because they're all MSK and with the advent of, you know, increased obesity in children and and hypertension and someday this kid is going to come in and have a heart attack. Okay, we're going to go on to some respiratory cases. This is a four-year-old boy who comes to the emergency room with, with acute respiratory distress. He is triaged directly into, uh, into recess. His respiratory rate is 120 a minute. In drawing, he can't speak. He can hear air entry on the left side, and his O2 sat is 80%. That's his chest X-ray. And you could see on the X-ray that he has this subcutaneous emphysema, and he has a pneumo. That's the X-ray. That's the kid. He can't breathe. His O2 sat's 80%. What do you want to do? He wants to put a needle. That's what the eMERGE guy wanted to do. He wanted to put a needle. This is what the, the choices are. You could do an arterial gas on the child. You could give him Ventolin. You could give him 100% oxygen monitor, or you could prepare for a chest tube. So they were going to put a chest tube in this boy. And I said, let's get a history. So his history is that two months earlier, he was prescribed puffers for a cough after a cold, and he was better after one day. Now he's had four days of cough. He was seen in a walk-in because of fever and cough, and they gave him puffers and Zithromax. 
but he had respiratory distress that morning and he went to the family doctor who sent him to the emergency. So he has a history of reactive airways disease and he comes in with acute respiratory distress and a pneumo. So what we did, I said, don't put a chest tube in him, let's do a gas and see what his gas is. I gave him three masks, I gave him hydrocortisone and I gave him some oxygen. Didn't put a chest tube in him. After three masks, his respiratory rate was 60. I went back to see him. He said to me, I want to paint. So I said, he wants to paint. Maybe we shouldn't put a chest tube into him. So we admitted him. So they, I think that at that time, this was a number of years ago, so the eMERGE doc was quite uh, worried about him, thinking he needs a chest tube. I said, he doesn't need a chest tube because he wants to paint. So he said, but you're going to repeat the chest x-ray tomorrow. I said, you know what, I'll admit him. We'll take care of his asthma. But anyway, he just came in on four hourly masks, and that was in the days that we still used masks instead of puffers. And um, he was totally well, and he went home in two days with his asthma. So the pneumothorax, pneumomediastinum, it was small. Complication of acute asthma, we see it a lot in kids. They usually resolve spontaneously. We don't put chest tubes into them. And it's only serious if it's a tension pneumo. And you can see it's not a tension pneumo, right? But what was presented to me was, again... I work in an adult eMERGE as a pediatric consultant. I was told that if you're hypoxic and you have a pneumo, then you get a chest tube because that's the management. But it's not the management in kids. So we just treated his asthma, and he got better really quickly. In kids, secondary spontaneous pneumothorax is associated with any kind of parenchymal lung disruption like asthma, cystic fibrosis, connective tissue disease, malignancy, and even foreign body aspiration. For non-traumatic pneumothoraces, there really aren't any accepted criteria for who needs drainage in pediatrics like there are in adults. Whether the patient with secondary non-traumatic pneumothorax receives a pleural tube or just observation will depend on the chest x-ray and their clinical course. Many of these patients, if they have a small pneumothorax and they're clinically improving, will not need drainage, as Dr. Goldenberg illustrated in this case. This case is a five-year-old boy he presented also with acute respiratory distress. So this was his exam. Severe respiratory distress, no air entry. You couldn't hear air entry at all. His oxygen sat 77% in room air. And this is his x-ray. He is hyperinflated, but there's nothing else to see. This is his history. Reactive airways disease, one admission at two years old. He's now five. He has puffers at home, and the mother knows that when he gets a cold, she starts the puffers. She starts a flow vent 125, one puff twice a day. So he got a cold, so she started the flow vent. And that morning, he had a stomachache. So she said, you know, you don't have a stomachache, I'll keep you home from school. Then she noticed, oh, he doesn't look like he's breathing so well. So she called the doctor and made an appointment. En route to the doctor's office, she decided, looking at him, I don't like the way he looks, I'm going to come to the hospital. And when he presented, he couldn't walk. He couldn't breathe. There was nothing. And there was a code called as soon as he came in. And after intervention, his gas improved, 722 with a CO2 of 64. I wanted to point out that his white count was 29 and his glucose was 17. He had continuous ventolin masks that we were running. He got some IM epinephrine. He got some IV hydrocortisone. Then we ran max sulfate for 20 minutes. Then we ran CPAP with continuous inhalations and finally started an IV ventolin infusion before sending him out. I now follow him in my asthma clinic. The take-home points with this boy is, number one, he was a known asthmatic. 
He had a management plan for asthma because when he got a cold, he got puffers and that managed him. He had a completely unexpected severe episode. And that's why I have a problem with how they divide asthma into mild, moderate, and severe because you could be mild until you have a severe episode and then I don't know if you're severe or not. But I have to say I have managed this child very aggressively since that time. The mother has always thought I've been over-treating him and I have to keep reminding her about this episode, that he could have easily died, and I gave him a ton of preventative medication after this. Another thing is that he had a gradual deterioration. So, you know, we have a tendency to sometimes judge people when they come to the emergency room late and ask, why did you wait so long? It's very difficult to notice the difference between a little bit of breathing difficulty and having that kind of respiratory distress. So we have to And, you know, it's happened to me in many cases that I've seen with parents or even teachers not noticing that a child's having difficulty breathing. So we have to try and be a bit understanding about that. Clinically, chest X-ray report was no pneumonia. He was never treated with antibiotics because he had respiratory distress, but he had asthma. He did not have pneumonia. That elevated white blood cell count and glucose were related to stress, and that came down without any antibiotics. And we have been told numerous times with these kids with respiratory distress, uh, with asthma, don't intubate them because you, ha- you won't be able to get them off the ventilator with obstructive lung disease. So you, we gave him CPAP with continuous Ventolin and IV Ventolin, and he is perfect now with a very aggressive management plan for his asthma. So first of all, in asthma, you rarely need a chest tube for a pneumothorax. A child's asthma does not always follow the same pattern. So really treating them as mild, moderate, or severe doesn't really work. They have to have a management plan, and it has to be much more aggressive than what that mother was doing with one puff of flow vent twice a day. And management plans are essential to prevent severe exacerbations. Here I just wanted to make a few comments about intubating children with severe asthma. Like Dr. Goldenberg said, when possible, intubation should be avoided in children with severe asthma. Tracheal intubation may aggravate bronchospasm, induce laryngospasm, and increase barotrauma. It also usually dumps the blood pressure. Really, you should only be intubating a patient when they're pre-arrest, if they have profound hypoxemia, unresponsive to therapy, if they're rapidly deteriorating with their mental status, or if they have a mixed respiratory and metabolic acidosis. Your decision to intubate or not to intubate relies on your clinical judgment, not any specific pH or partial pressure of carbon dioxide. More than half of the significant morbidity and mortality associated with severe asthma occurs during or immediately following endotracheal intubation. Because of these risks, we've got to weigh the risk of intubation against the risk of impending respiratory failure. To prevent complications, it's recommended that rapid normalization of CO2 levels be avoided, and that mild hypercapnia be tolerated until lung function improves. In particular, high per minute ventilation rates should not be used because they lead to air trapping and decreased venous return, which may impair cardiopulmonary function. For more on intubating the severe asthmatic, I'd like to refer you to episode number 8 on airway controversies. We have a pearl pack discussion on this topic in that episode. So that about wraps it up for this month. The Whistler Conference was packed with a ton of amazing other lectures, and I really like how most of the lectures are case-based and small group. And man, is this skiing awesome. So I really hope to see you all there next year. 
And for this month's quote of the month, we have one from Solomon Gabriel, who was a poet and philosopher in the 11th century. The first step in the acquisition of wisdom is silence. The second, listening. The third, memory. The fourth, practice. And the fifth, teaching others. So next month, we're going to have with us Dr. Joel Yaffe and Dr. John Foote. They've been on the show before, and we're going to talk about oncologic emergencies. We're going to talk about everything from febrile neutropenia to tumor lysis syndrome. And I'm really looking forward to that one because both those guys are just huge brains. So until next time, take it easy.